It's a real honor, and I'm humbled to be here this morning. I know many of you have uh, served our country either in the military or in the government, so thank you for your public service. And thank you for carving out time in your busy week for God. It's very important. I've been covering terrorism now for nearly 30 years, and I began as a young radio reporter for ABC News in London in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that time, it was the height of the IRA's mainland bombing campaign. And this was really the old days where you carried with you all the time a radio recorder which was about the size of a briefcase and a very large microphone because you never knew when they would hit the next soft target, whether it was going to be a pub or a public restroom or the financial center in London. And when the bomb went off in the city, I lived about a mile north in a neighborhood called Islington, and I raised the window in my flat, and you could smell the heavy smoke and the gunpowder sort of hanging in the air. So I really lived with terrorism at that time. And one of the things that I learned, and it's one of the themes that has really carried with me throughout my career covering this topic, is how terrorists need to make it a generational conflict and they seek to divide us based on religion. In 1998, there was a bombing in Oma, Northern Ireland. It was in a market street in mid-August. And the street was filled with women and their children because they were going to buy school uniforms because the new school year was about to begin. And the warning came in from the provisional IRA or splinter group of the IRA, and they were very unhappy that a peace agreement had been signed months earlier with the help of uh, then-Senator George Mitchell. And they started moving people away from the courthouse because this was where the warning, warning said the bomb was, to an, the other end of the Market Street. But in fact, they were moving the women and children toward the bomb. And when it went off, 22 people were killed, and another 222 were maimed for life, blinded, deaf, crippled, lost a limb. One in five people in that village was inflicted with a wound that would be with them forever. Whenever they saw each other in the street, they would be reminded of the divide. And we went up to Oma and went to the elementary school where it was common practice in those days to have counseling sessions with children in the first, second, and third grade. And one little girl who was about nine at that time described how her father and her uncle had taken the family station wagon and gone down to the Market Street to try and help evacuate the wounded because the ambulance service was so overwhelmed. And her uncle and her father took the wounded to the hospital. Then they went back down into the market street, and they looked for the arms and legs based on the clothing of the victims that they had ferried. So terrorists seek to make it a generational conflict, and they also seek to divide us based on religion. And at that time, I came to know a gentleman who worked in the British intelligence services. And uh, the British have a tr terrific sort of dry sense of humor. And at that time, he was working as a weapons inspector in Iraq. And this is the old days of Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein used to say all the weapons inspectors were spies. And he would look at me and wink and say, quite right. <laughs> it's exactly what we are. 
But he gave me a piece of advice that I have carried with me through my career that I think still rings true today. And when you see terrorism in the news, I want you to think about this phrase. He told me, terrorism is like water. It takes the path of least resistance. It is a thinking enemy. You move one way, and then it moves another. And what we see now to fast forward to al-Qaeda and ISIS is that these are groups that not only seek to create a generational conflict, seek to divide us based on religion, but they also exploit our technology and attempt to use it against us. And one of the godfathers of what I describe as the new digital jihad is in fact an American, Anwar al-Awlaki. Anwar al-Awlaki was the first American targeted for death by the CIA, and he was killed in 2011 in Yemen. But he was actually born in New Mexico, raised in Yemen, and then spent considerable time back in the United States leading up to 9-11. And what he saw with the digital revolution and the internet was the ability to take this hateful ideology and to spread it to thousands. And he also saw this digital revolution as a way to connect like-minded people with their same hateful ideas. And the idea that the internet would somehow pour gasoline on the fire of self-radicalization is not an idea that blindsided the U.S. intelligence community. In fact, in 2007, in the National Intelligence Estimate, and this is the intelligence community's best assessment of what they think the future will look like, they predicted almost to the word what we are living today. Just give me one minute because I want to read this to you because even for me it's hard to believe that this was written almost a decade ago. And it reads in part, we assess that the spread of radical internet sites, increasingly aggressive anti-US rhetoric and actions, and the growing number of radical self-generating cells in Western countries indicate that the radical and violent segment of the West Muslim population is expanding including in the United States. The arrest and prosecution by U.S. law enforcement of a small number of violent Islamic extremists inside the United States who are becoming more connected ideologically, virtually, and in, or in a physical sense to the global extremist movement points to the possibility that others may become sufficiently radicalized that they will view the use of violence here as legitimate. We assess that this internal Muslim terrorist threat is not likely to be as severe as it is in Europe. It's hard to believe that that was written 10 years ago. And it was the American, Anwar al-Awlaki, who saw the potential of this. He uses, at the time, YouTube to spread his lectures. He wrote something called 44 Ways to Support Jihad. And one of the chapters within is entitled WWW Jihad. And it talks about how the individual can use the web and what we would now describe as social media to support these radical ideas. The conventional view of Anwar al-Awlaki, who, as I said, is the godfather of this digital jihad, is that he was radicalized after 9-11. But I would argue, based on a year-long investigation that we did along with our team, that there really is significant circumstantial evidence that he was part of a support network inside the United States for 
The first two hijackers came to the United States in January of 2000, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar, and they were two Saudis. They had just been at what was described as a terror summit in Malaysia. And when they came to the United States, they came to Los Angeles. And what always struck investigators with the 9-11 Commission and the Joint Congressional Inquiry is that these two Saudis landed in Los Angeles and then very quickly went to the ghetto in San Diego where they settled. And it seemed very odd because neither of them spoke any English. <laughs> and they thought it only made sense if there was someone here to meet them. And when they arrived in Los Angeles, they quickly connected with a Saudi Omar al-Bayoumi. We researched and reported on the Saudi links uh, five years ago, and very similar reporting has been uh, reprised by 60 Minutes in the last few weeks. But this Saudi Omar al-Bayoumi worked for the consulate in Los Angeles, and the word on the street was that he was kind of a government spy for them and keeping track of the, um, of the students here in the United States from Saudi Arabia. And he said that he had a chance meeting with these two hijackers in a Middle Eastern restaurant. And uh, Senator Bob Graham of the Joint Congressional Inquiry asked a statistician to figure out what the chances were of uh, Omar al-Bayoumi meeting with the two hijackers at a Middle Eastern restaurant in Los Angeles in the year 2000. And the probability was one in five million. <laughs> so it was statistically impossible. And in very short order, Omar al-Bayoumi connected the two hijackers to one of his colleagues who was very good friends with Anwar al-Awlaki. And on the day of the lunch at the Middle Eastern restaurant, there is a phone call between Bayoumi's phone and Anwar al-Awlaki's phone. This was confirmed to us by one of the Pent Bomb investigators who said, we don't know what the contents of that phone call were, and we don't know if Anwar al-Awlaki and Bayoumi were each holding their own phones. But we have to assume that they were on the phones and they were speaking that day because in short order the two Saudis arrived in San Diego and that part of San Diego, Al Cajon Boulevard, is really gangbangers and check cashing places and prostitutes at that time. And again, these two Saudis spoke no English. And in very short order, they began worshiping at the mosque of Anwar al-Awlaki and he helped them get settled, apartments, jobs at the gas station, and they worshipped at his mosque. And I have been to that mosque myself. And it's a very small, it's a ranch-style house that's been converted. And when we didn't get a, any answer at the front door when we knocked, I went around to the back of the building, and there was a staircase that led up into an anteroom. It's maybe 15 feet by four, five feet wide. It's very small, very low ceiling. Only one entry in and out. There's no bathroom or other rooms up there. And I later learned that this was the room where Anwar al-Awlaki met on a regular basis with the two hijackers. It was the kind of place that you would meet when you had something important to discuss, and it had to be discreet. His path would follow the hijackers again to Virginia, where the same pattern would repeat itself. So Anwar al-Awlaki was someone who at that time, and this is based on the assessment of Charlie Allen, who is really a legend in the intelligence community, he felt that it was in San Diego and Virginia that Anwar al-Awlaki came to realize the power and control that he could have over individuals. And then he saw the opportunity of the internet and the digital revolution 
as a way to spread his ideas. As a footnote to Anwar al-Awlaki, he still inspires terrorist attacks to this day. The female terrorist in San Bernardino, Tashfin Malik, was an avid viewer of his videos online. And one of the lingering questions about him is that in the fall of 2002, a year after the 9-11 attacks, and he was interviewed many times by the 9-11 investigators, he returned to the United States and there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest and he was held at JFK for a couple of hours waiting for some kind of direction from the FBI and an FBI agent advised the customs personnel to let him go even though the warrant for his arrest was still active. And within days, Anwar Alalaki showed up in that FBI agent's counterterrorism case. The FBI has a very hard job, and they have to work with a lot of unsavory people. But for many years, they denied that there was ever any effort to recruit him or flip him or try and turn him into an asset. But very recently, the Fourth Circuit remanded a case on the basis that FBI agents had withheld evidence about its investigation and relationship with Anwar al-Awlaki in the terrorism prosecution of Ali al-Tamimi, who was now serving a life sentence. I hope eventually the whole story will be told because we had Anwar al-Awlaki in our custody and we let him go. And think how history would have been different for the people who were on the Delta flight where the underwear bomber nearly brought it down on Christmas Day in 2009, the soldiers who were killed and wounded at Fort Hood. But Anwar al-Awlaki was killed in 2011, but he still lives on to this day because it really is one thing to kill a man and it's another thing to kill his ideas. And what ISIS has been able to do is it's been able to take the model that was set up by this American and again take this technology and use it against us in ways that are even hard to wrap your arms around. About a year and a half ago, I did some reporting on a new strategy ISIS had developed to target individuals on the web. And they had been searching the CENTCOM uh, website and they had found photographs that had been taken by an Air Force photographer, a father. And he was identified by name. And then they did some reverse engineering with Facebook, other social media sites, and they were able to identify his son, who was in eighth grade. And then, in what amounted to a flash mob attack, they sent out messages to all of their followers to start posting just abhorrent phrases on their Facebook pages in the idea that if they could raise their profile on the web, it might lead to an attack in the real world. It was about two years ago. And since, ISIS, as you know, began publishing lists of military personnel, then government officials, and now just average Americans. Because part of their goal is if they cannot attack us, to divide us, and to sow fear. But I think one of the advantages they have now is that there really has been a fundamental way in which our relationships have changed. In 9-11, it seems so quaint, 
investigators felt that there had to be that one-on-one -on -one in person contact kind of the mentoring thing to cross that threshold to violence but what we see 15 years later is that individuals are able to cross that threshold to violence in the virtual world they establish relationships online that have an incredible intimacy and I put myself in the old fogey category because I don't understand it I didn't grow up with this technology and if I'm going to be best friends with somebody I have to meet them in person and develop that relationship but when we were investigating Anwar al-Awlaki we came to know a young man who had worked as an FBI informant in Arizona and he agreed to do an interview with us because he felt Anwar al-Awlaki was giving American Muslims a bad name and he described how he had many of his best friends who were converts who were fighting on behalf of the US military in Iraq and I started inquiring about his friends and then I suddenly realized that these were people that he had never met in person he only knew them online yet they were some of his closest confidants and I believe that one of the revolutions that's going on right now is that people who grow up with this technology are fundamentally wired in a different way and they can establish that kind of intimacy which allows them to get over that threshold to violence there was some good news recently on ISIS and it came from the FBI director James Comey and he said in the first six months of 2015 they saw between six and ten Americans trying to travel overseas to join ISIS in Iraq and Syria and he didn't know how to explain it but that number has now dropped to about one a month he felt that it may have to do with the cost and also the realization that the life in the caliphate is not what it is cracked up to be that for the women they are raped and abused and they become sex slaves and for the young men they are like fodder on the battlefield but he said one very concerning trend continues which is the number of Americans who still consume this violence that they provide from thousands of miles away what he describes as the crowdsourcing of terrorism you push out these ideas you only have to hope one or two people buy in to the ideology and he said right now there are a thousand Americans who they consider high risk who they're monitoring who are on that spectrum between consuming violence and acting on behalf of ISIS and I know that you're all very involved in following current affairs because I think that's really a duty for all of us right now and you know about the the uh, legal action between the Justice Department and Apple because these terrorist groups have now figured out how to use our technology against us once again this time encryption and the iPhone issue is far from settled but the terrorists like water take the path of least resistance and they've already moved on to new technology so we're litigating over Apple but they've already moved on to something called WhatsApp which is end-to-end -end encryption and the message if you choose can be destructed within seconds of reading it and that's uh, if I'm correct developed by Facebook so again they're just that one step ahead and before I open it up to questions I always feel that when I talk about terrorism it would be remiss not to recognize the 9-11 families 
because their stories really encapsulate what I've been talking to you about this morning, the generational conflict, dividing us by religion, and then using our systems against us. When I first began covering uh, the military trials at Guantanamo Bay, I came to know a couple, Lee uh, and Eunice Hansen. And when I first met them, they were in their mid-70s. And they had lost their son and his wife and their granddaughter on Flight 175 that hit, uh, I believe it was the South Tower of the World Trade Center. And their granddaughter was the youngest victim on 9-11. She was just two years old. And he described how he received a phone call that morning. It was very early, maybe 8.30. And he was in the kitchen with his wife, and they had a small TV, and they were just having breakfast, and it was very unusual for his son to call. And he said, Dad, I don't want you to worry. Whatever happens to us, it's going to be quick. We've been hijacked. The plane is being flown so erratically, people are throwing up in the seats, and they've already slit the throat of one of the attendants. And I just want you to know that I love you, and I don't want you to worry about us. And then all of a sudden, the line went dead. And as it went dead, he turned and he looked at the TV in the kitchen, and he saw Flight 175 hit the tower. They're a remarkable couple. But 15 years after that attack, there has been no trial and no justice for them. And they have said to me that they expect that they will die before they ever see a trial. And if my memory serves, I think that was their only child and their only grandchild. So that generation was wiped out. And I always feel that responsibility when I cover this topic to think about people like the Hansons and to complete the job, even 15 years later, without a trial. So with that, I would like to open it up to your questions. Thank you very much. Art. Thank you. Thank you. try and approach this issue in a very sort of factually driven way, and I ask myself, if I was an investigator looking at a crime, I would want to have all the data in front of me. And I take the same approach when I look at acts of terrorism. I want to understand the connections of the individual. If there are individuals connected to, you know, a KKK meeting house, I would want to have that kind of information and in who was there. If there were individuals who were connected to a specific mosque, I would want to have that kind of information too. Because I think investigators cannot operate with one hand tied behind their back. Terrorists clearly seek to divide us based on religion. And they attempt to take a portion of our 
society and isolate them so that it almost justifies this ideology that the West is against their religion. But what I know is that we have winning ideas. <laughs> I hear this across the board regardless of someone's religion. It's a country that welcomes immigrants. It's a country of democracy. It's a country where there is freedom to speak your mind and where there is freedom of religion. And I, if I had one wish, I would wish that the politicians could reinforce these ideas rather than allowing the debate to further divide us. Because as they divide us politically and also in terms of religion, they are able to further their own agenda. It sounds kind of old-fashioned, but I feel like this is a situation where we all need to be rowing the boat in the same direction and not poking holes in the bottom. <laughs> That's my view. Thank you. Uh, yes, right there, Martha. Uh, I think there's a microphone. Could you just uh, bring it? Mm -hmm. Oh, releasing. This is an excellent uh, question. Might just repeat that. Sure. The question was, do you think the 28 pages which have been withheld from public release in the Joint Congressional Inquiry should be publicly made available? And if so, what would be the benefit? I would be in favor of the full release of the 28 pages, but it would have to be in a very thoughtful way, and it would have to be done with context provided. What I know about the pages, I have not read them, but what I know about the pages is that it was um, a lot of single source reporting that was never confirmed. So I would want to have the 28 pages and then whatever supplemental information was available so that we can answer whether the allegations were real, whether they were followed up, and if they were not followed up, why were they not followed up? I know from our reporting about Anwar al-Awlaki and the sort of the Saudi ties with the man I mentioned in California, Omar al-Bayoumi, um, are, are striking. I mean, they really are. Omar al-Bayoumi provided the rent money uh, for the two hijackers uh, in, in San Diego, and Senator Bob Graham said they could never find any record that the hijackers paid him back. So I think that Transparency is good, but transparency with context, I think, is even more important. Does that, does that answer the question? Okay, great. Uh, yes. Sure. Terrorist? Oh, the question is, how would you define terrorist? Well, the traditional definition of terrorism is an act of violence to promote a political end. That is the traditional view. And my experience is that that generally applies in all of the conditions that I've, I've referred to. Great, thank you. I think we have time for two more if they're quick. Sure. Uh, yes, right here. Oh, sorry. Hi. Guantanamo. Right, that's a great question. Well, um, they're still in uh, what I would describe as the pretrial uh, phase. If I had to make it as simple as possible, the great difficulty with the 9-11 case is that the five suspects were all uh, the subject of the CIA Enhanced Interrogation Program. And there's like a five-year period, which is kind of a blackout period. And the defense makes the argument that you 
cannot prosecute these individuals without taking those years into account, but the government is reluctant to allow that period to be, to be litigated. I have to, I've been in the court many times with these individuals, and if I could maybe just share a final anecdote to tell you what they're like. The U.S. government has gone to great effort and to great expense to provide some kind of legal process for these individuals who have, in effect, admitted to the crime. And they've gone to considerable effort to create a courtroom in Guantanamo Bay and to provide them with the best possible legal counsel. But when you go into the court, it's not unusual for some of them not to bother to show up because they're just not interested or they rather stay in their cell and sleep. And in 2009, I was at a hearing, one of the early hearings, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the alleged conspirators, uh, Wally Benatash, who's kind of like Al-Qaeda royalty, he was a money guy, his family goes way back with bin Laden's family, he made this uh, paper airplane out of the, one of the legal pad that's given to each of them, so these long yellow legal pads, and he threw the plane, and it landed on the desk of his fellow conspirator, um, uh, Al Baluchi. And Al Baluchi opened the plane and began laughing. You could see this through the reinforced glass. And I thought, gosh, I wonder what was inside that plane, like, a, like, like in grade school, some kind of message. And I learned later from a court security officer that he had written either the flight numbers for 9-11 or the tail numbers of the jet. And the symbolism of a paper airplane in a military court mocking these victims a decade after the fact really shows the darkness in their souls. And if I had one wish, I would hope that those who make decisions about how to pursue justice in this case could have that experience of sitting in the courtroom with them. I think we've got time for one more question, if it's quick. Yes, right there. Hi. Could you just give that microphone to him, Professor? It's clear that terrorism is a worldwide problem. Why do you feel that all the nations of the world haven't combined all of their resources, technological resources, economic resources, and military resources to address the problem? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think a lot has happened um, since 9-11 where people have worked on sort of a, in a global way to address the issue. One of the challenges, though, is that in almost every part of the world, there's what I would describe as sort of an underlying regional conflict, which the government that controls that area feels it must address in its own best interests. And those interests don't always align with the sort of larger global, global picture.